Good morning. It's good to see you. Glad I get to be here with you all. Um, it is a pleasure and a privilege to, to speak to you today. Um, that passage that uh, Kevin just read, the last two verses, is, and at the name of Jesus, we're going to talk about that. That's in this passage today. Every knee will bow. Some translations, like the one on the screen, actually said every knee should bow, which is true. I kind of like, he and I had, had a conversation about the should it be should or should it be will. And I said, I think will works because will is true and it's more comprehensive. Every, everyone above the earth, everyone on the earth, and everyone under the earth, I, I think that's pretty comprehensive. And it says whether you trust and follow the Lord or not, you will bow, okay? And I, I'm choosing to bow. I gladly submit to the Lord Jesus. But there are folks that aren't ready for that. And uh, one of the messages that we just keep repeating over and over as we go through the book of Revelation is, he's God, there is a God, you're not him, are you ready to meet him? And uh, there's a lot here for, for those who don't even believe there is a God today. Um, you will be challenged because he has given us a picture, not only of himself, but of his return in this passage. So uh, I could have titled this message Return of the King, and being a Lord of the Rings fan, especially the book, I... I showed great restraint, but you see, I still worked it in because of that great scene in the last of the trilogy and Aragon comes and he leads all the different armies that are all these different races representing all the different peoples of the world that are being um, basically attacked and, and everything hangs in the balance. Evil is about to prevail and here comes the king. And he's the king that has been prophesied to come and he comes just in time to lead them and to turn at the darkest hour the battle from darkness and defeat to victory and light. And the imagery in throughout the whole Lord of the Rings series is very much a biblical worldview, an allegory by any stretch. But Tolkien would say that the most powerful way to, to, to share truth he thinks, was through story. And so he writes this epic story. And um, if you have the fortitude to read through the whole thing, I think you find it very rewarding. Um, the movies are good too, but I highly recommend the book. But that said, there is a king that is coming that is not written in by Tolkien, but he is picturing the one that is coming. And we are finally to that place in the book of Revelation where we get to see him. Today's message is part two of last week's message which was the question, why do we worship Jesus? And last week we looked at two reasons, and one was the, the wrath of, uh, that he pours out on Babylon, which is the systems of this world, and the second was the wedding of the bride, with the bride, and where the bride is the church, and, and that God will bring us into complete and perfect reconciliation and restoration. That is playing out. It's not complete. But if you're in Christ, that has begun, and he's doing a new work in you, and he will complete it one day. Because he finishes what he starts, and he doesn't finish halfway, doing things halfway. But today, the reason is different. Today is just another reason, and it is because he's coming again, because of his imminent return. And imminent just means it's inevitable, and it could be any time. And so, while we don't know when Jesus is coming back, we know he's coming back. We know that he knows when he's coming back, and that we know that today, we're one week closer than we were last week to him coming back. 
because he has written future history here in this book to let us know so that we can prepare ourselves, our families, and those around us for his coming because there's going to be a lot of people that aren't ready for his coming. Well, I don't want people to not be ready because I didn't have something to do with helping them be prepared. For me, pointing them to the one who would come. So we're going to go through the second part of chapter 19, verses 11 through the end, about 10 more verses, 10 or 11 verses. And this is where the story goes from, it looks like we're going to lose, to we win big, and we win completely, and we win quickly. So with that, let's start reading through this, and let's see exactly what God revealed to John back in the day. This would have been first century, so 95-ish, A.D. 95, and uh, John would have written this down that is called the Revelation or the Apocalypse for a reason because it means unveiling, and it is an unveiling. God is unveiling future history to John to share with the people that were living in that day because they needed encouragement, they needed challenge, they needed, uh, they needed comfort, but also so that it could be shared with us today. Part of the reason of the book of Revelations, its whole purpose includes preparing us and helping us be encouraged during difficult times. Do we live in difficult times? Do we live in difficult times? Okay, I agree. Even though we may not live in the most difficult times, there have been some pretty difficult times in history. I don't know a lot of family members that have died because of war. That doesn't mean I don't have family members that have died because of war. But when you lived in some of the days of history that our world has seen, where war was an ever-present thing, and it wasn't across the ocean, some foreign land I've never been to, but it's in your own door, in your own town, in your own cities, and your own kids are going off, that's a different, that's a different kind of, of war than we're used to here in the last couple of decades since 9-11. That doesn't make it any less horrific, but it does mean that sometimes we can feel a little out of touch from what's happening. When soldiers come back and we we hear about what's going on, it almost feels like they're talking about a movie they watched because we haven't been there. We haven't smelled the blood. We haven't washed the dust off of our skin. We haven't had our ears ringing from shells falling from the sky. We haven't, most of us have not lived through that horror that is war. And so it's really easy for us to take for granted what we have And it's real easy for us to kind of say, yeah, yeah, war, whatever. What's for dinner? And we just totally don't get it. Well, as bad as war is, especially for those of you who know what war is like because you've been in the battle zone and you've been there and fought and, and, and experienced war up close and personal, there is a war that is coming that will be so lopsided it's going to be more lopsided than one side surrendering because it's going to be so lopsided one side is just going to die. And the other side, no one's going to die. And swords will never actually ring against each other. The battle will be so, so quick. The battle will be over before you can say Armageddon. Even though that's what it is. But that's not all we're going to see here. We're going to see several images. And front and center of this very important passage is the most important being to ever exist in all of history because he's outside of history and time, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just Jesus Christ. He is the risen Jesus Christ. Joe is spot on when he said, let's worship the risen Christ today. That's who we worship every week. It's who we should worship. He's not just Jesus of Nazareth, the one we see in the, in the Gospels. He's the one that, was, that died on the cross in the Gospels, the one who rose from the dead in the Gospels, the one who ascended to heaven in Acts, and the one who leads his church from the inside out, even today. 
But that's not all he's going to do. He's going to come back and he's going to set things right. It is the return of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's why we can say the best is yet to come because there will be all those things that we read about in the book of Isaiah, all those things that say that, that the, the lamb will lie down with the with the the lion and the child will put his hand in the viper's nest and there will be no biting and there will be no killing and there will be no carnivoring and it will just be the peace that surpasses all understanding in every area of life for all people alive forever and oh there's a feast i didn't want to leave that out we talked about that last week the wedding feast of the bride of Christ and, and, and Christ, and that that's a, a celebration that will never end. But, uh, and we, we talked about how that's possible because he defeated Babylon and the, with the wrath of God. But here we have the imminent return of Christ, and it starts very, very much with the word open. And when you look through the book of Revelation, if you go back and circle, every time you see the word open, you'll, it's like a window. It's like God's throwing open another window and he, and he ushers you into another part of the book of Revelation. And I think this is the fifth one. It might be the fourth one. I can't remember. But I think this is the fifth and last window that he throws open. And who do you see when you open the window but the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he is coming, not like a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in the manger. Sorry, you gotta toss those Hallmark cards out. This one is probably not on a Hallmark card because he's coming with a sword on a horse He's coming to war. Okay, so let's open up. Uh, let's start le- reading. Let me just unpack as much as I can, as best I can. The symbols that we see, rich with symbolism, lots of imagery here. Remember, symbols aren't a picture of something. They, are, they explain something in a manner that we can understand. So like we've used over and over, the, the bottle with the skull and crossbones on it, it's like a symbol that tells you there's death in that bottle. It's not a picture of death, it's a symbol of death. And these are symbols of a reality that is more real than the symbol itself, even though these symbols are graphic and these symbols are terrifying, okay? And they, so they don't mean that what they're describing is less real than what you're reading. It means what they're describing is more real than what they seem to describe, okay? So with that, let's jump in. John writes, he continues to write what he's being revealed to him by God. He says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me. Oh, and I think some translations say, behold, I like that. Behold is kind of God's way of saying, whack, whack, very nicely, of course. Pay attention to this. Look, make sure you don't miss this. Behold, there before me was a white horse, symbolizing victory for a warrior, whose rider is called Faithful and True, which is a name, one of the many names of Jesus Christ. I once saw a a little devotional book with the names of Jesus, and it was one for every day of the year, 365 names of Jesus. I don't know if there are actually exactly that many, um, but I know there's at least one that nobody knows, and it's not one of those because we're going to find that one later. But he is called Faithful and True. Okay, Faithful, what does that mean? Faithful means reliable. Okay, when I think of reliable, the first thing that comes to mind is old reliable. Lady in the Tramp, right? But what really, the picture that comes to mind is the, the Maytag repairman. You remember those old commercials where there's the guy in his Maytag uh, appliance repair suit, and he's got his hat on Jonathan Winters, and he's leaning on an appliance that never breaks because it's so reliable, and so he never gets to do his job, and he's always sleeping. Um, yeah, faithful would be reliable. And then true is another way of saying the real thing. Everybody just thought about Coke, didn't they? Coca-Cola is the real thing, right? But a genuine, 
authentic. I can't put a fake cola in front of you and you not be able to tell me that's not the real thing. <laughs> that's another cola, right? Some of, we call them pond water, but you know, the, so he is the real thing. He's not an imitation. He's not a wannabe. He is the one and only, the faithful and true. And then he starts to describe what is he doing with justice. Okay. You might say with justification, with righteousness, with justice, he judges. Okay. And he is our judge and he will judge us based on our actions, our words, and our thoughts, which is terrifying. And he wages war justly, okay? So, um, yes, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And this is not inconsistent with that. This same Jesus is going to come and wage war. So there's a time for peace. There's a time for war. The, the teacher in Ecclesiastes reminds us. And so I say to my pacifist friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, take note, Jesus is, in, is willing to go to battle when it's necessary. He probably has a pretty narrow parameters when he allows that to happen but he does do it when it call, is called for. We as people tend to go to war much more often than we need to, much more often than we should. And, and then there's the whole thing of, and I could run down this road and I won't, that probably the best way to fight any war would be without weapons and on your knees, but that's another sermon for another time. He judges and wages war justly. I had a professor in seminary, his name was Daniel Heimbach. And he worked in the first George Bush administration, and uh, he was a deputy something or other. But he wrote the just war policy for the United States, justifying the, the, justifying the making the case to, that, to go to defend or liberate Kuwait. And I just found it interesting that they called on somebody who was a believer who used the Bible to write the just war policy to say, in this case, basically we have a bully, and we're going to go in and we're going to defend those who cannot con- protect themselves. And that's, that's one of the things we're called to do. So when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, I think, how does that work? How does that work? Jesus is when you're attacked, turn the other cheek. But don't mess with my wife. You see what I'm saying? Right? I'll f- don't, don't touch my kids. Don't affect, don't come after the least, the last, the lost, those who cannot defend themselves. Right? So there's a time to fight, but there's also a time to turn the other cheek. And then there's the individual calling, and then there's the corporate calling, and, and all of that. And, and I don't have time to go into that other than to say there's a time for peace and there's a time for war. And Jesus says, This is the time for war, and we're going to do, do violence to the enemy. Okay? There is a time for this. And we should not just gloss over it as if it's not real and true and appropriate. Here we go. His eyes are like blazing fire. Okay? So I picture his eyes like blazing with fire. <laughs> How do you say it, right? And, and, and what does this say? It's penetrating. It would be a because pen- fire is light. It also purifies. So we have someone who is pure looking in and through us and can see everything we think and knows everything about us. Omniscience. Okay? So we, have, so we have one who is so powerful. He knows everything you've ever said, thought, or done and will judge us for everything we've said, thought, and done. Now that sounds like really bad news because 
to sin once is to be judged and worthy of hell, right? So we need something, to, someone to intervene so that we don't have to stand before God for what we said, thought, and done in all of history. Otherwise, we're all going to get what we deserve, and that's the wrath of God. So how do we dodge that? How do we miss the wrath of God? And it's because when God looks at us and we stand there, guilty as all get out, Jesus stands between us with that filter of blood, and through the blood of Jesus, we're cleansed. It's not only that we have sinned and been forgiven, it's as if we've never sinned. God sees us as if we've never sinned. Does that not get you relieved, if nothing else, but right, gives you reason to praise him? Why do we worship Jesus? Because he is the filter that cleanses us and purifies us from all self-right, all unrighteousness. Okay, it says that on his head are many crowns. Some translations say diadems. And I'm not quite sure that I know, I think there's a nuanced difference here, but they both are headpieces that are worn. I think a diadem might have more cloth instead of metal in it, but it has jewels in it. But they represent the same thing. They represent ruling a kingdom or a nation. So most kings, most time we see a picture of a king, we see him wearing a crown, right? We don't usually see a king wearing two crowns or three crowns or more than that. It just seems silly. But in the days of, of Jesus' first century Christianity, kings did that. And the reason they did that is they wanted to remind their subjects, I'm not just the king of you and your people. I'm not just the king of your land. I'm the king of other nations and other peoples. And, and of course, the Roman Caesars could certainly say that. I'm not sure that they were the ones that did that. But the point is that sometimes that happens. So while this is a silly picture, it's also a historical picture. Again, this is all written to people in the first century. They would have understood that because they would have seen that before. So, so why does it matter? Now, I want you to think back a couple of chapters when we had a picture of the, of the dragon and he, was, he had 10 heads and crowns on all these heads. And it's like, what's that about? Well, he's trying to show off that he's ruling all these nations. So he's ruling, so he, maybe he's ruling seven or 10 or whatever the number was. Jesus got a stack to the moon. He rules every nation, every kingdom, past, present, and future, now and forever. And so while it, it's kind of a, a comic cosmic joke uh, all those you know crowns it says something doesn't it compared to that impressive well he was impressive that dragon with all those head you know one head not all these one head one king that is king of them all on his head are many crowns he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself now this seems a little odd too right we have all these names of jesus in the bible right why would he have a name that nobody else knows? Okay, so I think, I think probably the best explanation that I've seen or heard is that one of the things that's true about in history, and it's in those days, but in lots of history, is that people who dabble in the occult, people who um, pray, people who, who do incantations and spells and things like that, they all seem to believe that if you know, you need to know the name of the person that you're cursing or blessing for it to have more power for you to have more control. And so the names are important. You'll even hear Christians talk about that when they talk about exercising demons. You need to know the name of the demon before you can throw them out. I don't know what I think about that. I have mixed feelings about that, but nevertheless, I, not, I certainly believe that they're demons and I certainly believe that you can cast them out. Um, I just don't ever hear, I only hear of Jesus using the name of a legion once, uh, of, and legion was the name of a demon once. 
Um, usually he just says, get out of here, and they scram. So uh, I don't know. But why would Jesus not, why would we not know this name about Jesus? Now, I don't know what's different about this name, but I know that this name apparently is so significant that no one else needs to know, no one else gets to know. And it says basically, no one can control me. No one can use my name and control me. Now, just to give you a hint of what it's like to control somebody because of their name, let's imagine that um, it's Third Thursday, and there's a bunch of people in, in downtown Somerville because that's what you do on Third Thursdays. And let's say I see, I see Joe Debney. He's walking down with his family down the sidewalk. And so I go, Joe Debney. I, I say to Anita, watch this. Joe Debney. And what does he do? What does he do? Turns his head when he hears his voice. Now, he might not hear me. It depends on the ear. But, uh, right? So, I just exercised power. I made him turn around. Now, that's kind of silly. It's really small. But tell me that's not something. I used, and it was because I used his name. If I had just said, hey, you, a bunch of people would have turned around, but they, it wouldn't have, been for them, wouldn't have necessarily been the one I was speaking to. You see what I mean? And so there's this idea that was in, and, and whether it's true or not, Jesus is making this clear. You don't know everything, I know everything, and no one controls me, not even those who know my name. In this case, you don't, no one knows the name. And so I, that's the best I can do with that. That's what I think. All right, the armies of heaven, this is verse 14. I'm sorry, I, I need to go to verse 13, 13. He, that is Jesus, okay, again, this is about him. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, that's a little strange too, right? I mean, if you're going to battle and you're on a war horse, I would expect you would wear armor to go with your sword. A helmet, okay, and we think of the armor of God, you know, a helmet of salvation, helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, belt of truth, shoes fitted with the peace of the gospel or the gospel of peace, um, armed with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, or sword, sword of the word of, is the word of God. He has the sword, but he doesn't have any of the other pieces of armor. He has a robe on. So who wears robes, okay? Uh, besides Harry Potter, we've got priests, prophets maybe, I think, kings. And Jesus certainly is prophet, priest, and king. But what's with the blood? The battle hasn't started yet, so we might think, well, that's part from the battle. No, I don't think so. It hasn't started yet. It could be blood from the martyrs that are under the altar crying out for vengeance, which is about to happen. So that would be appropriate, but nah, I don't think so. I think what this is saying is, what, what we're seeing here is, there has, this is from the battle. This is blood from the battle. What battle was that? The capital B battle, the cross, where Jesus died for the sins of the world. Satan is about to throw a massive cosmic party because he's finally killed the son of God. He's dead. He can't do any more miracles. He can't heal anybody. He can't lead anybody to cry. You know, he can't have any more followers. They're all discouraged. They're all leaving. They're all disillusioned. Until the third day, when God the Father raises him from the dead to resurrect him to live forever, never to die again. And that was proof that Jesus, right, he received the best that Satan could throw at him, death itself, and he overcame it because he is Lord of even that, okay? And this is why we have hope as Christians. This is why we know this is not the end. This is why we can go to a funeral and celebrate a life because we know that if they know the Lord, they are alive. It's not a death. It's a it's, it's moving to go home. 
And he says, so this robe dipped, it's, it's saying we're going into battle. We've already won the battle. This is a little B battle, even though it's Armageddon and we're going, whoa, this is, the, this is probably the most troops that will ever amass, amass to fight anybody on both sides. Armies, some people think it's all humans, all different human armies. Some people think it's humans and angels. It's plural. It could be. All, how are they dressed? Watch how they're dressed. I'll come back to word of God in just a second. The armies of heaven were following him, riding white horses, again, symbol of victory, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. They're wearing white, wearing, riding on white horses. They're not wearing armor either. They're clothed in their robes of righteousness. Their linen is priestly garment. That linen ephod is like a, a priestly garment. And who are we supposed to be? Well, part of our identity is that we are part of a royal priesthood. I think it's First Peter 2. Royal priesthood, which means what do priests do? Priests represent God to people, and they represent people to God. So when I pray for somebody, on, I pray on behalf of somebody and take them to the Lord, I'm doing a priestly function. When I tell somebody about God, I'm doing a priestly function. That's part of my role as all the different identities we have in Christ. One of them is royal priest. I'm not just a priest. I'm a priest from the royal household of Jesus, who is the the high priest. Armies of heaven and following him wearing white, that linen, white, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Now, this is an odd picture. He's, there's a picture of Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. Now, I, I read, I skipped over it. I, I want to come back to it now. He was dressed in a robe dipped in blood. This is verse 13. And his name is the word of God. Okay? In the beginning, this is John 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. Well, that tells me that it's not just letters. That tells me there's a living being attached to this word called word. The Greek word is logos. It's where we get logical from because God's a logical, reasonable, orderly being, okay? That's why we have brains. It's why we have the ability to think. It's why we can practice science because we live in a world that's ordered and we have physical laws that are predictable and make it possible to know what is and what isn't. Okay, science doesn't exist apart from God. Sorry, atheist science, scientist, you don't have to believe in God for it to be true. Okay, so word of God, logos. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and, the, and was with God in the beginning. And then skip down to verse 14. And the word, logos, became flesh. Well, who became flesh? The only word I know of, right, is Jesus. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth, I think is the gist of what it says in the rest of that verse. And for all who received him, ah, verse 12, I can't remember it. Um, but anyway, you get the idea. Jesus is the word. He's called the word by John in the book of John, written way before this. Now here we are, and we're, we're seeing him in the book of Revelation, where he is called. And, and the sword is symbolic of the word of God the words of Jesus, and he's speaking those words, which is why the sword's in his mouth. When Jesus speaks, you realize every time he speaks, it's scripture, all right? If he says bubblegum, it's in the Bible, right? That's the, that's the power of his words because it's so reliable. It's so true. It's so right. If he says that Coke is better than Pepsi, then it would be true, right? It's, I'm just saying, I'm just, it would be the real thing in, in, in stereo. So you see what I'm saying? But the word of God, so this, think about this. Jesus spoke to a fig tree and he cursed the tree 
And the next time they walk by that tree, it's withered. He didn't touch it. He didn't mix up a spell. He didn't dance. He just said, be cursed. That's, that's not just words, right? That's power. But you kind of get the idea of that, right? If you're in the military, you understand when, a, when an officer gives a, a, a subordinate an order, word, that subordinate obeys or pays the consequences, right? That's power. You, that's a small power of using words. If a parent has a disciplined child that cares about them and they say, go do something, that child will do that, okay? Notice I put all those conditions on it. Jesus spoke to a storm that was so bad on the Sea of Galilee that the seasoned sailors in the boat were thinking they were going to die. And he spoke to the waves that were over the, the side of the boat and flooding the boat. And he said, be still. And it was still with a word. Jesus spoke to Talitha. Talitha? Tabitha. One's in Acts and one's in the Gospels. I can't remember which is which. And he says, get up, little child. And she gets up from being dead to life. He raises her with a word. He says, Lazarus, four days dead in the tomb, wrapped in grave clothes, come out. And he walks out like a mummy. They have to unwrap him because he's been dead four days. Jesus' words make things happen, okay? And Jesus, this is just no extra charge for this, Jesus gives his people authority to pray like that, okay? So that means that when I speak the Lord's will in the Lord's way, that he can answer that just as much as he did with Jesus. I'm not saying he always does, okay? It's kind of like, why do some people get healed and others don't? I don't know, except the sovereign will of God is at work and he knows better than I do. And anytime I pray something, he's either gonna answer my prayer because it's good or he's gonna bring something better even though I don't see that in, I may not see what's better. I just see a prayer not answered. But it is, it's just that I don't get to see it play out the way God would have it. And he knows better. He sees the whole parade from the sky. He's up there real high and he sees the whole parade before him. I just see the part passing in front of me. So I don't see the whole picture, but he does. And therefore his answer to prayer is always best, even though it's hard sometimes to swallow. Coming out of his mouth, a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he's just going to come and he's going to, I don't know what word he's going to say. We don't get that, but he's going to deal with this army. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Iron, firm, resolve, scepter implies rule, but some people would translate that as shepherd's staff, okay? And I think both are appropriate, and so I'm just going to say shepherd's staff dash rod, okay? But a shepherd's staff made of iron seems a little odd. But that's what David was, right? He was a shepherd boy and he came and God said, shepherd my people, which, which I'll explain in a second. But he also was a king and he was a warrior. And so to me, those go together. Now, what is a shepherd called to do? What does a shepherd do for the sheep? He leads them where they need to go. He feeds so that they can feed on what they need to feed and he protects them from predators because they can't protect themselves. That's what a shepherd does for a sheep. Then Jesus uses that imagery and, and he is the good shepherd. It's called, he's called the good shepherd. He's called the great shepherd, chief shepherd, great shepherd. I want to say he's called all three. And we, uh, pastors, elders are called under shepherds or 
Pastors is kind of that, that word. Pastors, elders. So what are we called to do? We're called to do what the chief shepherd does under his authority, by grace, through faith in him, by the power of his spirit. So what do we do? The imagery is that we're shepherds and that our people are the flock. Okay, now don't take that personally. Nobody's telling me, you know, we're not saying you're dumb and that you can't defend yourself. Um, But I'm saying the imagery is there for a reason. It's to say this, that as a a pastor, elder, bishop, uh, overseer, whatever Bible word you want to use, those are all interchangeable. We have one job. And if we're not doing our one job, then you need to come up and knock on our forehead and go, McFly, McFly, you have one job. Lead, feed, and protect the people. And how do we do that? Through the word of God, the spirit of God, together as the people of God, okay? So I'm trusting that when you come and gather in the name of Jesus to worship him in power by grace through faith, believing his spirit is here to animate the words that I speak so that God can work them into your heart and life so that you can work them in others, that's what we're talking about. That's what a shepherd's supposed to do. And if we're not doing that, then what are we doing? That's, that's, what, we're do, that's what we're supposed to do. Everything else, it flows from that. And it can happen in a big room like this, and it can happen in a small room in your house, and it can happen just online like this. It, it, as long as it's happening, lead, feed, protect. Now I'll go one step further, and then I'll move on. Dads, shepherd, the flock under your roof. That's your family. That's extended family that may be living with you. And really, if you think of your extended family, they may not all live under your roof, but they're under your influence, okay? And that 50 people that are closest to you, shepherd them. And you might say, well, they're not all believers. So? Jesus made disciples before they trusted him. The disciples followed him before they followed him, okay? Disciple is just a learner, someone who's coming along. Well, they don't want to learn. Okay, then be content to be an example and pray for them until they do. Shepherd the flock in your, I'll just say in your orbit, those who are orbiting around you in the sense that they are, you cross paths with them on a regular basis. All right, I got to keep going. Just dads. Okay, coming, and we'll talk more about that tonight when, the, when we get together, guys. Coming out of the mouth of sharp sword. Okay, he will rule them. Verse, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Boy, that sounds colorful. This winepress is like this big carved out of rock vat. It might have been built out of wood. I don't know, but I think they're generally made out of, carved out of rock. And they bring in this harvest of grapes, and I'm thinking, just think in the terms of, um, a small dump truck full of grapes. I mean, we're talking about fields and fields of grapes. And so they whack off these big, you know, things of grapes and you drop them in and then someone gets in and they, they start doing this until the, the, basically the grapes bleed juice and it goes out the trough into a bucket, they collect it and then they can make wine and all the other things they make from grapes. Okay, and that's imagery. That is a symbol of the wrath of God. And the grapes represent people who rebel against God. And this is the wrath of God. And that's the blood. Okay? It's all symbolic of death to those who rebel against their creator. 
Those who say, oh, creator, oh, there's a creator. I bow at the, you know, they mock and they, they make fun of and they say, I, I can't see you. What's wrong? Can you not reveal your, oh, you can't prove to me that you exist. Oh, well, I guess I don't have to be afraid of you and, and all of that. Mockers, those who take the mark of the beast, those who worship the prince of darkness. And you can say, well, that's fine. I don't worship Satan. Don't you? Because if you don't worship the Lord Jesus Christ, your creator, then you worship something or someone else that is diametrically opposed to God. So you don't have to wear a red suit and put horns on your head to be basically worshiping Babylon and all that Satan puts in front of us. And I know that's graphic and I know that seems melodramatic and all this, but I'm just trying to say it is that real. You are either for Jesus or you are against him. There's no middle ground. There's nowhere to hide. There's no holding place. Well, I haven't decided yet. Yes, you have. Until you decide and follow Christ, you have already continued to decide against him. We are born into this world against him. We are born into this world, it says in Romans 5, as enemies of God. We're born that way. That's why you don't have to teach anybody how to sin because we're born sinners. It's in our nature. And the only hope we have to be delivered from that nature is the blood of Christ. So he shed his blood so that we wouldn't have to shed ours. You see it? The wine press is for those who do not believe that Jesus did what, it, what we need. He do you trust him? It's what it comes down to. Do I trust that God has made a way for me a sinner to get back to a holy and good God? And he's, the answer is, yes, he's made a way. The question is, do you buy it? Do you believe it? Are you going to let imperfect Christians, hypocritical Christians like me, get in your way of believing what's true? I mean, that's like saying, well, I'm not going to ever go to a doctor again because I had a doctor once and he was wrong. Hello? Never met a doctor that wasn't wrong. Not necessarily speaking from experience, okay? Love the doctors. Go doctors. Heroes, right? Little age, okay? You see what I'm saying? All right, so let's be consistent here. If you want to mock Christians, mock the doctors and nurses and quit going to hospitals. All right, but there's a spiritual hospital and Jesus never fails, okay? All right, let's finish this out. Verse, uh, on his thigh, verse 16, on, on his robe. And on his thigh, he has this name written, okay? I don't know. I don't know if he's got it tattooed. I don't know if he's got it on his britches. I don't know. It says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, he could put any bumper sticker on him he wants to, and those are the ones he chooses, okay? King of kings and Lord of lords. Don't put that on your car because you're not a king, certainly not king of kings, okay? But I get it if you'd want to, but don't because the people then will see how you drive and they'll be like all confused, all right? That's why I don't have Christian stickers on my car. I'm not sanctified enough yet. Verse 17, and I saw, and y'all know if you've ridden behind me, and I saw an angel standing in the sun, okay? So think about this. If an angel standing in the sun, and I don't think it means in the sun, I think it means between the person viewing the angel and the sun. So that means that the angel is a silhouette because you can't make out because of the bright sun. But it also means there's a lot of light coming your way. You're like doing this even to see the silhouette of the angel. I don't know what, exactly why. Then I saw the bee, oh, I'm sorry. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. And this is gonna be weird. Come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, 
generals and the mighty horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Implied here by context would be the bad guys, those not dressed in white and following the Lord Jesus. So we have this feast that's basically a massacre. This is just gross, right? It tells you death is horrible. And it also is eternal, as we'll see in a minute. And so whatever it takes to get people to wake up and see that that's your destiny apart from Jesus Christ, he's going to write it. He's going to make it very vivid and memorable. I hope that if you don't know the Lord Jesus, that every night you will dream about that until you turn to Jesus. And you say, well, that's horrible. No, it's not. Which is worse? Dying and experiencing that or dreaming that until you submit your life to Christ? You see, God allows things in our lives that are horrible sometimes because he's trying to win us to something that's better. And for some of us, that's the kind of motivation we need. Some of us are, are wooed in and we're, very, we're more compliant and more submissive and more willing to trust and follow people. And so when God leads us, we just follow right in and it's not all these horrible things. But some folks, they need a two by four daily upside the head. And it's like, oh, I need to trust the Lord. Oh, maybe I should do that. I don't know. Let me pray. About it. No, I don't, no, I don't believe. Next day, two by four, number two, and on through. And so God uses these vivid pictures to say, wake up, dead people. Don't be dead anymore. I come to bring you life. And so, yes, he's going to use offensive language to those who don't believe. Of course it's going to be offensive. You're either for him or against him. That's why people, when you share the gospel with people, they're either leaning in or they're giving you the finger. There's no in-between reaction. He's very polarizing. And that's appropriate. Because I don't want you walking around thinking you're okay without Jesus. And we have churches doing that. We have preachers doing that. You know, let me give you three steps to feel better today. Come on. No. I don't want you to feel better and go to hell. All right. Um, Where was I? (laughs) Okay. Um, That's what happens when you go off. All right. So that you may, okay, we did that. We won't eat the flesh again. Oh, one other comment here on free and slave, great and small. What is that about? Jesus died for all people. And it doesn't matter if you are the most powerful person in the world or the least in the world. And he judges the same way. Grace and mercy is to all people. They say that you've heard it said the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Okay. And we're all sucking dirt because when we realize who God is, we're on our face before God because he, we fear God rightly so okay so there it doesn't matter how religious you are that doesn't get you there jesus hates religion he loves a relationship and if you want to call a relationship with christ religion i'm good with that but james said it's take care of orphans and widows so we'd have an issue there true religion so there's that Okay, let's finish this out. Um, Verse uh, 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathering together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. Here we go, Armageddon again. Remember now, chapter 16, this already happened. Chapter 17, 18, and 19, he takes chapter 16 and he kind of drills down and exploded it. It puts it in exploding view. You know those scenes where Tony Stark, he's looking at something and he does this and it's like this little picture blows up into this big, that's kind of what he's doing. He's taking chapter 16 and he's going, whoop, I wish I could do that, it'd be cool. 
And now we're looking at 6, 17, 18, and 19. Well, we're right here in 19. Now we get to see Armageddon and how it plays out. And I, I promise you're going to be, re- in some ways, you're going to be a little disappointed because there's not a lot of blood and gore. All right? Verse 20. But the beat, oh, well, so all of them were, so you have the dry Euphrates River. Remember, Jesus dried it out so the armies from the east could come across. He's like, here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Uh, we're going to have this war. He's defending Israel's people. He's in position to defend his church. And here we go. Then he says um, that they're all, he just says, they're done. I saw them. They're gathered to wage war against the rider and the beast. But the beast was captured. Okay, remember, that's the Antichrist. With his false prophet, that's the false prophet, who had performed the signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. Okay? So that's to say that the kingdom, of, the kingdom of darkness has power to do signs and miracles. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus, you're going to buy him. You're going to think, that's God, because he's going to be godlike. I mean, it's kind of why we worship superheroes. We're like, they're godlike. That's close enough. I like those spandex-clad people to be my gods. And yeah, the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. That means it really stinks. It means it's on fire. Remember, symbols, okay? Now, you, I have no problem if this is literal. I mean, I have a problem. Like, I don't want this place to exist problem. But I don't have a problem if God literally does it this way. But if he doesn't, the symbol just means whatever is really there is this on steroids. Worse. And this sounds pretty bad. And then he says in verse 21, the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Jesus shows up and the battle's over. The only blood shed has already been shed on the cross. All the linen, white linen garments, all the priestly garments, they stay white except for the corner of the robe of Jesus that was dipped in, the, in his blood. And that's why we sing songs about the blood of Jesus. Not because we're like loving to talk about gory things. It's because his blood is what saves us. The atoning sacrifice that you and I need to be forgiven, for our sins to be forgiven, atoned for, the wrath of God satisfied is his blood. And the reason his blood has to be is because he's the only person who is qualified to die in our place. Anybody else, there's a, they're sinners. They can't die in our place because they're sinners. He's not a sinner. You say, well, he was born. Yeah, but who was his daddy? It wasn't Joseph. That was his adopted dad. It was the Holy Spirit of God sent by God the Father. And so this is why we have Virgin Mary. We've never been with a man. We have the virgin birth, which makes Jesus not born a sinner, which is why, part of the reason why he never sinned. The other part of the reason is he walked by grace through faith perfectly until he went to the cross and had, didn't have to do it anymore. He walked like he's calling us to walk. So why do we worship Jesus? Because he's coming again. Why do we worship Jesus? Because of who he is, what he's done, and what he's going to do. Okay? Resist the temptation to see this as some comic book fantasy. 2,000 years, people have lived and died this book. It's been tested every way you can test. And people have testimony after testimony after testimony say, 
He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And I'm giving my life to him. I am surrendering gladly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I invite you to follow me and do the same. That's what they're saying. That's what I'm saying. And many in this room would say the same. Okay? Now, maybe there's an area of your life you have not surrendered to Jesus. I mean, statistics tell us a lot of men are dealing with pornography who, are called, who call themselves Christians, for example. That's just one example. Because that's, that's a stronghold in your life that you've got to surrender. And you can surrender it by his grace. Okay? What is it for you? What is it in your life that you're clinging to? And it's like your pet sin as if it can't bite you as if it can't derail you. And then there's the whole, what if you don't even know the Lord Jesus Christ? You're like, well, I don't even believe God's real. And yet, have you got something better? Really? What have you got that stands up to all the tests, prophecy, archaeology, scientific research, experience from people, uh, truth, just logic, reason, what have you got that you've put up against the word of God that has stood better than this? I challenge you to find something that's better than this. The men and women that I know that have tried always end up, and this wins. Okay? And that doesn't mean that everybody that ever has, has or will, but I challenge you to do that and to do it with a heart that's genuinely open and willing to hear the truth to truly seek the truth because it's the truth that sets you free. But it's not just knowing the truth that sets you free. It's living the truth that sets you free. Let's pray. Lord God, as we continue to worship you in this service, God, through the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that you paid the price for us on the cross. And that's why we take a piece of bread because it reminds us your body was, was tortured by Roman centurions and soldiers with instruments of torture to within an inch of your life but you didn't die there because that wasn't your plan and then you had to carry parts of your cross up the hill to Calvary and then you were nailed to that cross and then you were hung on that cross where you'd bled and died and that's why we have the grape juice or the wine. We, we drink that to remember your blood was shed for us. You died so that we wouldn't have to be the grapes in the great wine press of God's wrath. We miss that by your grace and power, your love for your father, which is why you obeyed him, and for us because of your compassion. We love you and praise you back. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. So Lord, I pray that you would bring understanding and comprehension to all who hear these words, that you would give us the faith we need to respond to you, Lord, and not just believe and then walk away, but to truly say, I want to follow the Lord Jesus because he is my creator and he's coming back soon. And I want to be doing what he would want to find me doing so that he can see me and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Even now, Lord, speak. Your servant is listening. Your people are open. May we sing songs uh, with words that we can sing with integrity, or if we can't, may we pray them as we read them. May we receive this Lord's Supper today as a reminder of your grace and mercy poured out for us at Calvary. It's in Christ's name we pray.